Coming up this hour, we're going to talk some COVID news, and then we're joined by pastor and author Scott Sauls. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are so glad you are here. I want to talk a little COVID news. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess I don't really want to talk a little COVID news. I feel like we need to, but uh, I want to take a different tack. So it feels like a lot of times this very first segment, we're just hitting you with a lot of data, a lot of like, here are the numbers. Uh, this is a little bit different. I'm going to take kind of three different approaches to some of the COVID news. So I got three articles here, Brian, and I'll let you choose which one we want to tackle first. Yeah, the first one, let's go from uh, about the United Nations. Uh, I believe we got this from ABC News. It says this, famines of biblical proportions feared in 2021 amid COVID-19 pandemic, UN Food Agency warns. And so this is a worldwide look in which they say they need, uh, you know, $15 billion next year to avert a famine and to carry out the agency's global programs for malnourished children around the world that basically... Uh, and it lists countries requiring urgent action like Afghanistan, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Congo, and so on. But it reminds us that even in our own country, uh, food insecurities around COVID-19 is unbelievable. You've probably seen on the news the, the lines, the miles-long lines at food banks and food pantries right now. Uh, and it's so sad to see, but it's, it's again, something we talked about yesterday, right, was you've got the physical aspects of COVID-19 and the health aspects, but then you've got all the other things that are coming out of it uh, that are loosely related to it. And this issue of food insecurity in our country and around the world, I think, is a huge one and is going to continue to be a huge one. And, and if you have capacity, like what, what's one of the phrases that we used to say is like, if you have extra Build a longer table, not a taller fence. Something, something like that. Mm-hmm. I think is the phrase. And again, obviously, table is metaphoric now at this point because <laughs> you know eating around people is uh, is not advised. But I I do think there's something to that though because it's one thing to read an article like that and be like, oh my gosh, it's about to get bad out there. Well, glad I'm okay. I think as the, as a Christ follower, it need we need to be moved. I think beyond just sympathy or even empathy to say, okay, well, what what can I do? What can our church do? What can our community do? And the answer is always something, right? Like you, mm-hmm. you probably won't be able to solve any of it, but we can do something. I, I think that's just important to kind of keep out in front. Um, I found this this other article at the New York Times fascinating. The headline says, churches step in where politicians will not. Again, this is not from Christianity Today or Religion News. It's mm-hmm. from the New York Times. Churches step in where politicians will not. What's going on here? Yeah, this one is around the idea of debt. So, but I think it still fits with the idea of food insecurity. Churches can step in. But this article in the New York Times is specifically about the mounting debt, medical debt or debt from being out of work, whatever else it might be uh, due to COVID-19. And as we've been seeing on the news, our government is not doing a very good job at being able to uh, reach across the aisle and come up with relief package or whatever else to help people. And so, like you said, not a, this isn't a Christianity Day. This is at a New York Times basically saying the church might need to be the ones to step up where politicians are failing us right now. And they, they reference an organization that you and I have talked about that seems to do. I still don't understand how it functions, but uh, this RIP debt uh, charitable organization that many churches partner with where you're paying off medical debt, uh, pennies on a dollar. Yeah. Uh, and churches coming in and just transforming communities of people who are just suffering the weight of debt. And I think this, too, 
uh, is going to be one of these long lasting issues from COVID-19. People, whether it be because they got sick or whether it be because they were underinsured or whether it be because they lost their job and couldn't keep up with their bills, that, that this idea of debt is going to be crushing for many people in our communities. And the New York Times of all places is, is uh, opining and saying, hey, churches, this is an opportunity mm-hmm. for you. And we might need you here because our politicians are proving they're not going to step in here. That's right. One of our partners on the show is Christians Against Poverty. We're actually partnering with them at Community Christian Church as well. I highly, highly recommend you check them out. And to the first article we talked about, uh, later in this week, we're partnering with um, with Food for the Poor. So uh, again, right. like partnering it's with organizations that are like boots on the ground, making a really important difference in the world is uh, is something that I feel very grateful for, but also something that, you know, when we meet with them, it's like I'm realizing the depth of some of the obstacles before us. And uh, I just I think we all have an opportunity to really step in here in a pretty powerful mm-hmm. way. This third one kind of surprised me. Maybe it surprised you. It's not irrelevant. Since Gen Z is most likely to say faith has been important during the pandemic. You want to talk about this? Yeah, I think that's another lasting question is what's the effect on people's faith going to be through this pandemic? People being separate from church, just kind of down over what's going on. And they they found some interesting findings. Uh, it says Beckett, which is a law firm, recently started issuing a religious freedom index report, which analyzes how Americans are feeling about religious liberties. The report has a few interesting findings. Uh, about how American spiritual beliefs have been impacted by the pandemic season, including this little chestnut. No age group has relied on faith more than Zoomers. Yep. It says 74% of Gen Z responders said faith was, quote, at least somewhat important, a higher number than any other generation. On average, 62% of Americans said faith was at least a little important for making it through COVID-19. 64% of the silent generation agreed, making them the second highest. Uh, Gen X was the lowest at 56%. And so Gen Z, which often gets a really bad rap where, you know, we talk about uh, what is the, you know, how is everything going to play out for Gen Z and the church going forward? And so relevant here in their findings from Beckett Law Firm is saying, uh, no, actually, Gen Z is kind of saying, no, it's my faith that is uh, at at higher levels. percentages than other generations saying, no, my faith is sustaining me in this. And and that's encouraging uh, and also somewhat surprising. Why do you think it's surprising? I mean, I was surprised too. I already said that, but like, why, why? I mean, you're a pastor, you, you know, we're talking with people about issues of faith all the time. Like why? I, I, I can't imagine you and I are alone in, you know, our surprise. Because we've done so many articles and they're not wrong articles, but we've done so many articles and discussions about uh, people worrying about Gen Z, right? Like, uh, are, are they leaving the church? Are they, uh, you know, what is their view on faith? Uh, people look at Gen Z and politics a certain way. And so I think we've been kind of uh, reminded over and over again. And again, these findings aren't false uh, that we kind of look at Gen Z going, oh, I hope they can make it. And and so then you you get this sort of stuff and you go, okay, good. Yeah, no, actually faith is important to that. We know that. But again, when you get a lot of information that kind of hints the other way, uh, and then you read stuff like this, it just becomes an encouragement. Yeah, I would say if you love a Gen Z or be encouraged, uh, if you love <laughs> or know a Gen X or pray for them. Um, because... <laughs> <laughs> That's what we found out here. Yeah, yeah right. That, that, is, that is my big takeaway. Not, that part isn't necessarily surprising. But like always, all those articles have been posted up on our Facebook page. We'd love for you to weigh in in the comments section or shoot us a private message if you have additional thoughts or perspectives or you think there's a great guest that could expound on these topics. You can go ahead and send us a message over there. Coming up next, though, 
We love when he's on. Pastor and author Scott Sauls is going to join us for not one, but two segments coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're right. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have back to the show. I think this might be a hat trick for our friend Scott Sauls. Welcome back to the show, sir. Good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's our pleasure. For, for people who maybe don't remember or are unfamiliar, would you take just a minute or two and introduce yourself to everybody? Uh, sure. I'm uh, a senior pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, Married 25 years to Patty, and then we've got uh, two daughters, Abby and Ellie, who are uh, entering adult life. Uh, one is a freshman in college, one just graduated from college, and um, written a few books uh, as well. And people can find more about find out more about me if they would like at scottsauls.com, which is my website, or christpres.org, which is our church website. Awesome. And at scottsalls.com, Scott, you wrote a blog post that was up the other day entitled Navigating the Emotional Impact of COVID and mm. uh, such an important topic. But I want to go kind of even below that and just ask you, you talk a lot about mental health issues personally, but also just kind of in the church. And I'm wondering why you think uh, mental health issues like depression or anxiety are kind of taboo subjects, not just with pastors, but it seems like in the church in general. Yeah, you know, uh, in my experience and in my world, they actually are less taboo than um, than I understand that they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the communities that I've been part of, people have felt you know very free to uh, put themselves in community and and be transparent about their unique struggles with things like anxiety or depression or other. Uh, other challenges emotionally or mentally. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a real foreigner to, to the idea of a church where these subjects are, are taboo because that's just not been my experience. Oh, that's interesting. Cause we, we did a, a mental health series at our church a couple of months ago. And a lot of the feedback was, thank you so much for breaking the silence for breaking the mm. stigma. It seemed wow. like a lot of people's wow. experience was I've never even heard a sermon around this. If you had to guess, why why would you think that might be? Like, why is it still so taboo in, in certain areas and not others? Well, um, one of the things about mental illness, especially if you're talking about anxiety and depression, is that it's a very isolating experience uh, in that both afflictions uh, try to convince you that you're all alone in the world with this struggle and that you're you're unique and that maybe uh, you're some kind of freak who can't handle life uh, like other people can handle life. And I think living in the social media environment that we live in, where everybody's just sharing their highlight reels uh, right. on their social media platforms and aren't really giving the full picture, we get this false impression that nobody understands our struggles because look at, look at their life on Instagram. It's just such Mm -hmm. a great life, you know, and, and, um, and we miss the reality that everybody hurts, everybody struggles, everybody's, you know, fighting a a hard battle, even if that hard battle is, is maybe more hidden uh, than, than some other people's battles. But I think when you, when you come out into the open about, your struggles, you, you find very quickly that people in the room or, or in the community will gravitate towards you and 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 say, oh, uh, that's my struggle, too. Hmm. 
And in the blog, you talk about how, uh, you know, COVID, the pandemic and all that we've had to do being separated from people and other things has just kind of poured gasoline on this for many people. And I'm wondering if someone's listening and they're like, man, I'm in a dark spot. I am really struggling. What's one or two steps that maybe you would counsel somebody who's feeling that way to take? I think it starts with finding, you know, the the two or three most trusted people in your your life. And for some, that's a spouse. For others, that's a roommate or somebody in your church or a, a pastor. And tell your story and and ask them to speak into it and and to pray for you. And when you've got something more ongoing, I I, I personally think it's it's wise to enlist a team of people that include. Uh, you know, somebody who's either a pastor or gifted at pastoral care mm. and a professional counselor, uh, a good one. And mm. oftentimes pastors are good at helping you find uh, the, the, the good ones uh, in your in your local community. But uh, I know that, that that's been greatly beneficial to me and also to people in my life who've experienced these struggles. You know what? You tweeted something earlier today that I, I think might actually be related. I could be wrong, but you tweeted something about God not calling us to be awesome, but to be humble and to leave the awesome up to him. And I, I wonder if you think that's connected, this like obsession with like, I got to make a name for myself. I got to be someone. I got to build something that sometimes that maybe gets in the way of us being content and like really, truly pursuing intimacy with God. Do you think there's a connection there? Uh, I, there certainly can be. Um you know, I, I do know some healthy people with platforms and, and yeah. who are, you know, well-known. But I, I, for every one healthy person that fits that description, I, I probably know a handful of others who aren't very healthy. And, yeah. and, and lack, of, lack of emotional health, lack of, lack of a healthy ego, uh, in other words, lack of humility, uh, eventually leads to afflictions like anxiety, like, um, you know, the pressure to, to put on an appearance that, that is incongruent with your day-to-day reality. So I, so I do think in, in a lot of cases there is uh, a connection there. Um, I think in the essay I mentioned that, that, or maybe not in the essay that you mentioned, maybe in another one or in a book chapter or something, I talk about how, um, you know, at the time of writing, I had known five pastors who had lost their ministries because of a moral failure, and all of them had both celebrity and uh, isolation. And, and by isolation, I mean lack of accountability, just had a lot more fans than friends, uh, a lot more followers than friends, and um, just got in a vulnerable place like David did before the Bathsheba event, you know, it right. says that he's alone while, while other Kings are out to war. He's, he's alone taking a nap in the afternoon, uh, in his castle. And, and it was in that isolated vulnerable place that, that David crashed morally. And that number five has increased to over a dozen, uh, since oh. the time I wrote, you know, that, that initial essay or chapter. And, that includes some pastors that have taken their lives. That that includes pastors that have lost their ministries because of a moral failure. The two common threads are uh, 
um, celebrity or, or what my grandpa used to call getting too big for your britches uh, uh, and, and isolation, um, yeah. you know, removing yourself from being truly known and from giving other people permission to speak into your life. Yeah. Yeah. And earlier you, you talked about the the struggle and the danger that social media can be. I, I really appreciate your Twitter account and uh, other things that you put online, but I'm just curious for you personally, how do you, what are the safeguards you have in your own life when it comes to social media? How do you approach social media? Well, um, you know, I, I actually, if I'm, I'm being honest, this is kind of a real time question. I, I, I just recently um, kind of, I found a, a partner to do this and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just started to get, get my act together initiative on several fronts. <laughs> one, one is in the area of my relationship with, with food, especially sweets and, mm-hmm. um, you know, barbecue and you know things of that sort. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other has to do with just, you know, healthy personal practices. And one of those, has to do with my relationship with screens and media. And, mm. and I, you know, I've gotten, especially during COVID, I've gotten a little bit lazy in terms of, of healthy practices. And so, so actually just starting yesterday, wow. um, you know, I've, I've committed to, to only, you know, checking email no more than three times a day, uh, wow. you know, e- email and social media altogether combined, uh, no more than three times a day for, for no more than, 30 minutes at a time. And I can already feel the freedom of it. The, the, yeah. the, the remarkable thing is, you know, you, you're terrified and you think there's going to be this massive withdrawal and adjustment period. But with that, it, it's just, it, for me, it's almost immediate relief to have a better relationship uh, with, with screens where, where I control that relationship ra- rather mm-hmm. than screens controlling the relationship. And so, yeah. um, you know, there's some there's some other books that have been written that that, that are healthy and helpful. Uh, I know Andy Crouch has written a couple on on our relationship with technology that that could be helpful for people. Um, uh, you know, he's certainly you know got a better history than I do with with things like screens. But but um, interesting the timing of your question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks thanks for sharing that. And you wrote a book huh. that I I don't know if it could have been more timely. It came out in June. It's called The Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. Uh, I'll let Brian kind of drill down a little deeper, but would you just give us the 30,000-foot perspective on that book and why you wrote it? Well, I, I, I wrote it two years before 2020. Hmm. There's this whole editing process that you go through uh, and you know, really had no idea what kind of year it would be. I, I was only... I was just anticipating that this would be an election year and right. remember that 2016 didn't go very well. And so, you know, envision that 2020 might, might be a rough year as well, just in terms of the way that people treated each other. And so um, the idea of writing a book uh, around the concept of, of Proverbs 15:1, where it says a gentle answer turns away wrath, um, you know, led me to write a book that, that starts with, the various ways that that the gentleness of Christ is is uh, gifted to us uh, through through His grace. You know, we've got these seven "I am" statements uh, that that Jesus makes. You know, I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the vine. I'm the good shepherd, and so on in the Gospel according to John. And then we've got an eighth "I am" statement in Matthew chapter eleven, where He says, "I am gentle uh, and humble in heart." and and with that, there's an invitation for the weary to come to him and find rest. And so, 
So the first part of the book, um, you know, focuses on that theme of of coming to Christ uh, to let Him uh, lavish His gentleness uh, upon us in our our you know anxious state and so on. And then the the last five chapters are about uh, the kinds of people that 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 we can become, uh, having received the gentleness of Christ as we go out into a hostile world and into challenging relationships and 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 so on and so so the book is is really just around that concept i love that yeah and i wonder as you as the book has been out for a little bit now and as you talk to people uh you know christ followers and non-christ followers but especially in the church do you find there is a desire for more civility gentleness kindness or have you been getting a lot of pushback people going no this is the time to fight this is the time to you know to speak loudly uh what's kind of the response that you get when you speak of kindness and civility it's been a little bit of both. And I, you know, I, I, it, the human heart, we, we can become so binary and we, we can say, no, we need to be prophetic. Well, yes, but we also need to be kind. Uh, or, right. or no, we need to be gentle. But yes, we also need to be truth tellers. You know, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And, um, you know, one doesn't cancel out the other. One completes the other. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, he's both lamb and lion. Uh, he's, he's both kind and severe, according to Romans, you know, where it says, consider the kindness and the severity of God. Uh, and, and it goes on and on and on. But uh, I think in answer to your question, are people craving uh, the gentle answer? Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, otherwise, why would Mr. Rogers be so popular? Uh, again, uh, you know, a documentary that, that did really well, and then a Hollywood film uh, where Tom Hanks played, you know, the the person of Fred Rogers, and, and you know, and it was a blockbuster as well. I, I I think that I think that indicates just that just the Mister Rogers dynamic indicates that there is very likely a silent uh, majority of people that are craving, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something different than cancel culture and call out culture, um, you know, because prophetic voices. Uh, are, are only meaningful when, when they're when 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 their intent is is to destroy a problem, not mm. a person. And and the problem with today's so-called prophetic voices is that there are just too many people that are trying to destroy other people mm. uh, rather than to destroy problems. And um, you know, righteous anger, uh, as the Bible presents it, destroys problems. You know, Jesus came to destroy sin, so he didn't have to destroy sinners. Right. Uh, Jesus came to destroy death uh, in order to promote life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, that's righteous anger, but raging anger is, is a lot like a raging fire. It just tries to destroy everyone mm-hmm. and everything in its path. And it's, it's unfruitful. And I would argue it's, it's also woefully ineffective. Hmm. I, want, I want to ask you about the other side of this, because I think often the end of the discussion for people feels like, okay, so I'll, I'll try really hard to be kinder to people. I'll keep my anger under wraps or whatever. I'm wondering, is there another side to this, though, about us being unoffendable? Like, is there a, a sort of reverse perspective that as Christians, yes, yes, we need to be kind because of God's kindness to us. But is, is there another aspect to where maybe we're sometimes too easily offended by things, in your opinion? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, we are. Uh, it's, it's not a it's not a new phenomenon. But First Corinthians thirteen, when Paul defines love, one of one of the ways that he 
he defines it as he says, love is not easily offended. Right. Uh, and uh, I mean, we only need to look to Christ himself, who's got every reason to be offended uh, by all of us. And, and yet, yet he responds to us in the same way he responded to the woman caught in the act of adultery, uh, where, you know, all the religious zealots around her, they want to condemn her, they want to cancel her and scold her and, and, you know, make an example out of her and expose her, you know, and, and I've always, I've always wondered why the man who was caught in adultery with the woman right. wasn't dragged out right. into, um, you know, the center of, of things and, 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 Jesus, you know, is left alone with her at the end, and he's actually the only one who was qualified to put her to death because he was the only one there who was without sin. Uh, and he says, uh, I don't condemn you. Uh, now leave your life of sin. Uh, again, there's this kindness, and then there's there's truth. Uh, he, he, but he starts with kind, kindness. He starts with no condemnation. Uh, I do not condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. If you reverse the order of those sentences, if you reverse the, reverse the sequence, you lose Christianity and you lose Christ because um, you, you all of a sudden make make the favor of God a conditional thing when you say leave your life of sin, and then you won't be condemned. Whereas Jesus yeah. does it the other way around. He starts with what we call the the indicatives before he gets to the imperatives. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you before we're done about one more tweet that you wrote, because I thought it was so important. It's so important theologically. Let me just quickly read it. It says, want to be like Jesus, focus less on being like him and more on being with him. His attributes must be caught before they can be imitated. Could you just unpack that for people? Because I think that is such a foundational and important thing that we so often get wrong. So I want to give you a chance just to unpack that a little bit. Well, C.S. Lewis has this famous... um, you know, quote where he says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Right. And I, I think that applies to things like the fruit of the spirit, uh, you know, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We, everybody who belongs to Christ has, has this, this desire in us to, to become those things more and more. But, but you, you, there's no bypass road around knowing Christ. Uh, in order to get to those virtues. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, just think about how many of our New Year's resolutions we've mm-hmm. broken uh, in contrast to the ones that we've kept. <laughs> uh, it's because there's just something in the human heart where, where it's impossible for us to measure up to a standard uh, without help that comes from outside of ourselves. And like like Isaiah says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And, and that includes, you know, in the, the goal and trajectory of becoming better human beings. Uh, we've got to go through Christ. Um, you know, theologians talk about the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God. The incommunicable ones are like his, you know, omniscience, where he knows everything, his omnipotence, where he's all powerful. Those attributes do not get passed on to us. But but the communicable attributes like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on are like a communicable virus, right? Uh, we're all thinking about, you know, COVID these days. It's a communicable right. virus. It can be communicated right. and passed on from one person to another. How do you get a virus? You 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 eat after somebody, you drink after somebody, you inhale their breath. Mm. Uh, and the same is true for the communicable attributes of God. You You eat after him and you drink after him. And, you know, the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. and you know, receiving his word and, and, you know, being part of the community that he's put you in in the church. Uh, you know, you receive what, what you, you, by, through proximity. By getting close to him, you catch what he's got. Uh, 
uh, and and um, you know that's why he talks about abiding. You know, I am the vine, you're the branches. Abide, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. But if we don't abide in Him, if we try some other bypass road through self exertion, self discipline, um, you know, we may may see some temporary results, but it won't be sustainable because our mm-hmm. our hearts aren't able to to sustain it. That's so good. Our guest today has been Scott Sauls. He is a senior pastor and the author of numerous books. The most recent is A Gentle Answer. You can learn more at scottsauls.com, and I can't encourage you enough to do so. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure, guys. Yeah, I appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. This is not at all what we're going to talk about in the segment, but as a kid, I remember hearing, like, that was our reward. I was like, that's a lame reward. Like, I just... <laughs> I want baseball a, cards. I don't, yeah, I was gonna say, I don't know if that's sacrilegious, but as a 12-year-old, I'm like, I'm not going to stop swearing for some jewels. That's not... <laughs> That's, that that's not appealing at all. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> you talk about like a Snickers bar or something. Now we're talking, but I was very easily motivated by my stomach. All right. So uh, this is a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's interesting. Brian and I are both pastors. And so we are interested in conversations around church and theology, but also how it actually affects our communities and the ways that we talk about things and language, really anything. But it's it's articles like this that I think are really fascinating that I, I, I actually haven't heard a lot of buzz about. It's by uh, Charles Stone, and it's called How the Apostle Paul Thought About Church Growth. And I don't know if you've ever thought about no. church growth or how the Apostle Paul thought about church growth, but I think, he's, I think he brings up some really interesting points that, big surprise, run counter to a lot of how we talk about church growth, particularly here in the West. Do you want to get us into it? Uh, yeah, so he talks about how when he was in seminary, Church Growth 101 was a required course. A required course, And so he's going to say in this article, I suggest five growth essentials, church growth essentials from the Apostle Paul that we see from his first missionary journey. It says Church 101 from the Apostle Paul. First, a bit of background at this point, he says in the early church described in Acts 13 and 14, we see three significant movements. The main church leader moving to uh, moving to Peter uh, to Paul from Peter the target group for evangelism shifting from Jewish to Gentile and a move from a rural focus to an urban focus. Paul and Barnabas visited six cities on this first missionary journey. So that's the background uh, of Paul's first missionary journey. So five principles. Let me tackle the first one. Principle one, rely on the Holy Spirit. In these two chapters, we see the obvious work of the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, while not dismissing good leadership through strategic planning and great outreach events, only God by his spirit grows the church. Uh, In chapter 13, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in several ways. He selects Paul and Barnabas. He planted in their hearts a desire. He gave Paul great courage. Uh, So if you want to see your church grow, principle one, make sure the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing your plans and decisions. Okay, let me ask you this one then, church planner, Brian. Why is that Mm -hmm. one so difficult? I don't know a pastor on the planet that would knock that one, but it's probably safe to say that's not always happening, though, right? Right. I think just think about our own ministries or people out there. Think about uh, how quickly we neglect that, which is most important. Think about prayer in your own life or in the life of your church, uh, whether your church is new and young or it's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, I think if we're truly reliant on the Holy Spirit, that's going to manifest itself in a reliance on prayer and a, de- a devotion to prayer. And then if we look at our own churches, we go, uh, maybe, maybe some churches out there are, but most churches I know have kind of, 
are, are, are about what do we need to do to grow? What do we need to do to make things happen? And we skip over this essential point. So yeah, all of us would say we need the Holy Spirit, but sometimes our actions don't match that. That is true slash convicting. Okay, principle two, <laughs> evangelize through your most natural relationships. This is, again, Brian and I have talked numerous times about how we were you know raised under a certain style of evangelism that looked like clipboards at the mall or at the beach. Uh, so I find this one interesting. He says, when Paul would enter a city, he would make a beeline to the synagogue. Why? Because he was a Jew and Jews would be there. Their common Jewishness bound them together. It was also natural for him to go there first because the Jews were already religiously minded and Paul could easily talk about what was common between them, the Old Testament scriptures, prophecy, and the longed for Messiah. Some of the most fruitful ways to grow the church is to find those most open to the gospel, often those already in our circle of relationships. I love that one because I feel like in a lot of ways there's this pervasive anxiety around evangelism because people do kind of imagine this parachute into a crowd of strangers and try to like win them over in a conversation. And I think, I think this author makes a great point here that that's not often the approach that Mm -hmm. Paul took. Yep. Principle number three, uh, stay flexible in your approach. Paul tailored his evangelism to the group he was with. His method of operation with the Jews was to go to the synagogue and start with the Old Testament. And then he's going to go on and talk about how it was different to the Gentiles. It says later on, Paul flexed his approach toward the particular people he was evangelizing. Hmm. With the Jews, he used one approach and with the Gentiles, another. It behooves church leaders to know their communities and to use flexible approaches rather than cookie cutter methods we might learn in a book or at a conference. That's a that's a great word right there. All right. So we got two more to get in here. I think we can I think we can have a principle four. Deepen your spiritual roots. Growing a church is not an either or proposition, evangelism or discipleship. It is a both and. Paul certainly shared the gospel, but in these two chapters, he's also encouraging believers to send their roots deep in the Lord. In fact, when the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas on this trip, the church, uh, the church as practicing two spiritual disciplines, prayer and fasting. I think that might be a typo there. The church was practicing two oh, spiritual yeah. disciplines, prayer and fasting. Later, Paul encouraged them to continue in the grace of God and encourage them to remain true to the faith. He was challenging them towards spiritual formation. I think that's great. And something that I would love to talk to you more about maybe another time, because it, it does feel like there's often this dichotomous relationship mm-hmm. between evangelism. Are you an evangelistic church or are you a discipleship church? And I, I right. think it might actually be a false dichotomy. That's right. Principle five, don't bend to resistance to the gospel. Throughout history, when the gospel changed lives, resistance was sure to follow. Paul repeatedly faced resistance to his work, while at the same time, many responded to the gospel. So when you see God bless your church with growth, don't be surprised to experience resistance as well, sometimes even from within. God wants the church to grow. He wants your church to grow, and he will grow his church as we apply biblical church growth principles we see in the book of Acts. And then it goes on to ask the question, what other biblical church growth principles are missing from this list. So it is a good list. Let me ask you this question. Uh, We've talked often. One of the fun parts about the show is I'm in a relatively smaller to medium-sized church. Uh, You're in one of the bigger churches kind of in this area at the Yellow Box uh, Community Christian Church. So you guys probably get a lot of pushback from people like, oh, you just care about numbers. You just want to be big. And almost sometimes you could go to church conferences or talk to pastors. And when we speak of numerical growth, it's almost like a badge of honor not to want numerical growth. Right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, how do you answer people with that? Like uh, numerical growth isn't the important thing. It's not even an important thing to 
you know, numbers, we're too infatuated with numbers. As somebody who's in a big church, how do you answer that for people? Well, I, I got to give props to Dave and John Ferguson, you know, because they they kind of coined this phrase, the three C Christ follower, you know, celebrate, connect, contribute. Like it's not just celebrate is the, you know, at least a year ago when we would all gather to celebrate. Mm-hmm. We're like, yeah, that's just one of the three C's, though. Connecting is about being in community together, small groups, and then contributing is both financial, but also in service, in, in giving back. So we. Right. We measure it all, but we're we're very consistent in talking about yeah, celebrate is just one of three important C's. We're glad that they're here celebrating, but the goal isn't just to like, hey, just let's just keep growing a, the crowd bigger and bigger and bigger. So they, I mean, they just talk so consistently about it. It feels like the pushback is pretty minimal because when you write a book mm-hmm. like Hero Maker, or they have a book on the blessed practices <laughs> yes. coming out. You're like, okay, this it's clearly not about them and building that. You know what I mean? Like that's just yeah. so that's been consistent in their lives for 30 years. Even the fact that two brothers started a church and are still together. Like that takes, mm-hmm. I think some real <laughs> humility. Don't you think? Like, do you know oh, many yeah. brothers who could sustain three decades no. of like working no. in something as stressful as church work together? So I think that's a, yeah. I think it's a big part of it because it is. Yeah. You, you're always going to have critics, but it just feels like their messaging has been so consistent. They're like, Hey, this is, we want to be a movement church. But we also want to be an impact church, which means we celebrate the wins of other churches, other places as well. It's not just about us or the brand or, or any of those things. And I think um, there's a lot of accountability in that. And it takes a lot of work. And I and I know from their part, a lot of intentionality. And uh, I really, really appreciate that. So I know that not everybody thinks about church growth necessarily, but I thought this lesson from Paul and Peter was applicable to anyone who considers himself a Christ follower or is interested in some of the inner workings of what it means to be the church. You can find that up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And with that, our first hour is in the books, but kind of keeping with this idea a little bit and mixing in some uh, current headlines, I found this article fascinating, The Dark Side of Hierarchical Leadership. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope of Your Life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about leadership, news, social media addiction, and Advent. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We were talking the last segment a little bit about what the Apostle Paul has to say about church growth, which I know is not just a topic that pastors are interested in. It's actually one of those kind of evergreen conversations that if you're a church person or not, kind of gets tossed around. But particularly in light of some of the Carl Lentz news that we've, Mm -hmm. I now know, talked about a couple of times here, uh, I found this article fascinating. It's called The Dark Side of Hierarchical Leadership. You want to talk us through it a little bit? Yeah, it, it talks about how the example of Carl Lentz at Hillsong Church in New York is, <clears throat> in their words, a further example of the dark side of hierarchical leadership, where a pastor-centric ecclesiology places a charismatic person at the lead of the church. Uh, it says leadership might be considered one of the most critical areas facing the church. With the precipitous decline of American Christianity, we're increasingly aware of the negative impact of ecclesial structures that tend to favor a Western pastor-centric ecclesiology. So he's going to give five ideas about pastor-centric hierarchical leadership. So basically, those are a lot of big words, but the thought process being, think about all the stories we've done where it's usually a man, but but the one person who's in charge of the whole organization, everything runs through that person as opposed to an actually function, say, elder board or a governing system 
uh, but where it's just about this one person and where uh, things can go really great, but things can also go really badly. And so uh, the author of this, I believe you said his name is Michael Cooper. Was that Michael it? Cooper? Uh, yep, yep. He said uh, five ideas uh, about this. First, the biblical idea of submission does not communicate hierarchy. A study of the number of so-called one another passages in the Pauline corpus clearly indicate the notion of mutual submission that honors people in their role. And so it's going to keep going. But I, the idea uh, that that submission and hierarchy are, are kind of obviously at odds with each other, that when you're the superstar celebrity pastor running everything, having all power. Who are you submitting to? Right. There's a, mm. there, there's some problems there. Here, I'll quickly run through these five. And then if you've got one you want to jump out to, because okay. like we said, this article has a list within a list. So mm. <laughs> he says, second, the 18th century moniker pastoral ep- epistles placed on first and second Timothy and Titus focuses an unmerited preference on the role of pastor as leader of the church. Uh, but neither Timothy nor Titus were pastors. In fact, Paul explicitly identifies Timothy as deacon. The idea of pastor is derived from the Latin translation of the Greek for shepherd and is explicitly one of five co-equal leadership gifts to ensure a church is properly equipped to engage in God's mission. So this obvious, this idea of, of multiple leadership, of, of multiple giftings, he's going to get into that later. Uh, number three, he says 20th and 21st century Western church adopted business leadership models with expectations that each local church derive their own vision and mission led by a pastor and or an elder board. Perhaps uh, such short sightedness, he writes, and presumption expose a deeper gap in the Western church's understanding of our purpose to be on God's mission until the completion of his great vision of all nations, tribes, people, and languages kneeling before the throne. So this idea that, that we've adopted uh, more more and more and more business model and that there's, there's some problems that come with that. Uh, fourth, as necessitated by adopting business modes of leadership, church has become a volunteer-based organization with the need to fill positions in order for church programs to attract more people. Volunteers have become commodities necessary to to sustain an institution rather than disciple makers who grow a movement. And finally, servant leadership evolved during the tumultuous 1960s. It expresses a unique American leadership system that served as a corrective during a time period of abusive leaders. While the notion of being a servant is most definitely recognized in Scripture, servant leadership is not. Nevertheless, servant leadership is held to be the model of church leadership and used as a power word to ensure church members that what their leaders are doing to them is serving them. So there's a lot. This is uh, stirring the pot. Uh, but I'm just wondering your reaction. Those are those are five biggies right there. Uh, did any couple of those stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, all of them did. Let me just yeah. quickly reiterate the five. One, mutual submission. Two, empowerment. Three, the APEST thing there that he mentions, which is apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. Uh, four, Jesus is the head of the church. And then five, uh, models or Trinity. That's sort of the list within a list that you were talking about, um, which, again, I wish we had more time just to take a, a deeper a dive into all this. I'm kind of interested because you and I are in different roles in our different churches. So you're both the founding pastor and the lead pastor. Uh, I'm a teaching pastor of a multi-site church. So like the the decentralized, centralized leadership at a multi-site church uh, looks a little different. Mm-hmm. And I I do recognize some of the the difference that size components make with yep. regards to like what quote unquote is efficient or get stuff done. But even that, even that answer though, the fact that he's kind of going after like, man, we, we have sort of hyper glorified and celebrated 
efficiency and in some ways, and you and I probably read a lot of the similar leadership mm-hmm. books, kind of copy and paste from the corporate world. doesn't mean it's demonic or out- outright blasphemous, but it, I, the more I read stuff like this and, you know, Dan White Jr. writes about like polycentric leadership and you begin to pull back the curtain a little bit and realize yeah, there's a lot in scripture that actually does seem to stand in opposition to what is just like really normative for what we see around here. And it makes me wonder like, why, why, why is what's normal? So normal, I guess is my question. Yeah. I think we model that, which, uh, that, which we hold up, right. A lot of the bigger churches, this is kind of a description of what their leadership models were like. And so we go for that. You talk about, and it's also just the pull of, uh, Hey, you're the paid person, uh, run it through you, you make the decision. And so like, uh, it's very ironic that, that we're having this conversation right now. I'm literally, I have an elder meeting on zoom tonight. Uh, hmm. and, uh, I'm literally talking to them again, and we've talked about this a lot of different ways over the years, but some more little structural tweaks I want to make to spread out responsibility. And I've told them mm. a lot of times to make it less about me, because again, like you and I have talked about, I'm in a smaller church where I founded the church. I'm the lead pastor. So a lot of deference is given, not like, oh, it's all about you, but just deference, right? Like uh, you you started this and you you got the title and and I want to talk to our elders even tonight. That's why this is really interesting to talk about about some more structural changes we can make. So it's it's a little bit of shared responsibility and this and that. So I think this is so important. And a lot of times we often only talk about this with big churches. I actually think uh, this is as important, maybe even more important in smaller churches where it can often, you can go, well, we can only pay the one person. So let's just make it about the one person. Hmm. Uh, whereas that's still this, what this is calling to is not just for the big churches. This is for all churches here. Yeah. And how he ends it here, he says, as Jesus's 12 disciples were maneuvering for positions of power in the kingdom, he caught them or he taught them that they were not to lord authority over others as the Gentiles did. Instead, Jesus later provided a remarkable example of who the true leader was as he took the towel and and basin to wash their feet. Again, I know that may feel like a a cliche reference, but I think it's really, really important to remember um, the ways that Jesus himself modeled what leadership looks like. And it often looks very, very different than what we're used to seeing. And I think that, again, whether you're a pastor or a church person or not, I, I find that I find that really convicting and challenging, at the very least intriguing. And so I encourage you to give it a read. It's up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, though, how to read less news, but be more informed. Wouldn't we all love that to be true of us? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I haven't done the holidays yet. Should I do the holidays here? It's a good spot for it. Should I do it a little bit later? Do you want to hear some of the holidays today? I do. I do. I mean, we we mentioned Giving Tuesday, right? Are you a big Giving Tuesday guy? I I prefer Receiving Wednesday. (laughs) No, Giving Tuesday is good. Wow. Wow, Brian. (laughs) You are really setting the bar high here. Um, It is also uh, World Trick Shot Day. That's fun. Okay. Uh, day without art day, but the out is in parentheses. I don't know what that means. Um, bifocals at the monitor liberation day. <laughs> That's oddly specific. I don't even know what that really <laughs> means. Okay. National eat a red apple day, but I do want to end on a serious note though, because it is Rosa Parks day. And that, uh, if you're not familiar with the story of Rosa Parks, some of her history, uh, take some time today and research her. Cause she is r- remarkable. So, 
Happy Rosa Parks Day to everybody. Um, in light of that, how can I how can I bridge that to be somewhat relevant to this article? <laughs> this is from Get Pocket, which I think you probably turned me on to. I get the uh, I get the email sent to my inbox. I think five days a week is pretty great. How to read less news, but be more informed according to a futurist. It says, be a little picky, but stay open to new sources and know when to shut down. What is going on here, sir? Yeah, let me just read the intro, and then it's going to give us a list, some action items. But the author says, you might think someone who gets paid to predict the future would be mad for gadgets and forever spouting off on social media. But you'd be wrong. Writer and futurist Richard Watson may teach London business students and Silicon Valley tech companies how to think about crafting tools for tomorrow, but he's not even on Twitter. What's more, Watson doesn't really follow the news in any conventional way. He reads Sunday papers in print retrospectively. Uh, He's not trying to catch up, but to check and see which of the many headlines turned out to be relevant a few weeks or a month later. In other words, Watson is neutral about current events. He's placing any given moment in a much greater context than the day or the week. Watson's scale is grand and includes all of human history and its possible futures. In this very long view, nothing is such a big deal, although anything may become relevant eventually. Instead of focusing on what everyone is already talking about, Watson hunts down unusual knowledge. So he shared with this uh, website, Quartz, his approach to creating a smart information filter a net that captures what's happening and what really matters without making you a slave to information of fleeting importance. I think this is so timely, right? You and I have talked about the hours (laughs) we could spend on Twitter or just Uh surfing the internet. Do people still surf the internet? (laughs) 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 He's being on Twitter. Go out and take in a motion picture. (laughs) People surfing the web. (laughs) Welcome. Hello, 1998. How are you? Oh, man. Here's the new show, The Simpsons. (laughs) But all of this time that we spend, and here's this guy uh, whose job it is to know what's going on going, no, no, we, we, there, there could be a way to go about this to where you're not a slave to information. And just, it's not always just about reading more. Uh, and so he's going to give us 10 steps. Let's run through them. Number one, practice selective ignorance. You Done. can't read or think <laughs> you can to remove the word selective there. You uh, can't read or think about everything. So keep that in mind when choosing materials and pick quality over quantity and try to create a wide context. In other words, triangulate between breadth and depth. The more information is available, the less we tend to digest. And people are increasingly turning out, tuning out even while they consume. So it (laughs) makes sense to consume less and better data. Tuning out while they consume is probably how 80% of people consume this show, right? (laughs) Including us. (laughs) Like, it's on in the background. It's fine. Oh, boy. Uh, It's a list of 10. We're not going to be able to get to all of them. But number two, burst the bubble. Watson advises that we randomly pick up books and magazines and strike up conversations with strangers. These random acts of interest in strangers and unusual communications break your information consumption routines and expose you to unique insights. Obviously, much more difficult to do in a pandemic. But I I like I like how it's framed, because oftentimes talking to strangers is like a novelty at best. And I really do think there's something to what he's saying. You're like, no, this is how we kind of break out of some of our our ruts of thinking right. about you know the world and how we take in information. I think that's a great one. Yep. He says next one's called find the tall poppies. 
The Futurist advises that each of us cultivate a network of curious and remarkable people who are hungry for interesting information and can guide our thinking. Such remarkable characters are called tall poppies in some companies. And Watson believes collecting these human blooms drives success. That's a great one because we could find those people in our circles, in our lives, who could spur us on, make us think differently. But also, this is where it becomes important to find podcasts and other things of people who might think differently than you, but mm-hmm. can really kind of push your mindset and push you in different directions. Uh, I think this is uh, kind of standing on other people's shoulders. This is an important one. That feels like an invitation to send our podcast to someone you think might hate it, right? Just to practice. <laughs> yes. Practice Have them that subscribe, discipline. rate, and review, please. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be a good idea. All right. So here's not another reveal. one. Right. This one might be difficult again in a pandemic. Number four, hit the road. Says travel, but again, take the path untrodden, Watson argues. We are herd animals, and the temptation is always to follow the herd. Try not to. Mm. I think this is honestly even as simple as like taking new routes home. I know that seems so trite back when you know we used to commute. I don't leave the house anymore, but um, <laughs> I, I used to try to intentionally like, all right, can I carve out an extra 10 minutes just to take a different way home? Just to, just to realize how much how autopilot you can go on, how quickly you can do that. Just like sort of, and then you end up in your driveway and you're like, how did I get here? You know, like that's right. little, little small ways to kind of diverge from that. I think can be really helpful. I remember, or this is off the list, but uh, like a month or two ago, we were on my way to one of my sons, to my son's baseball game. And we were only like 30 minutes from home. And I turned to him and I said, we are on a street that I've never been on in my life. <laughs> like, in an area, in a town I've never been to before. It's yes, like 30 right. minutes from our house. So right. number five. <laughs> Find sources you trust, follow reliable, thoughtful, forward-looking publications and journalists online and let them do the heavy lifting, finding the most interesting info for you. If the publication or person is focused on thoughtful analysis and not panic news, you'll hear worthwhile insights. Watson especially recommends pursuing a perusing weekend editions of quality newspapers. Okay, that's a good one. All right, number six. This one's for all of us. Chill out, man. I added the man. Relax, (laughs) writes the futurist. The important news will find you. It will. Watson is confident that relevant information makes its way to us and that much of what we fuss over daily is just stuff that will soon be forgotten. Do you you find that you agree with that? So true. Just think about this. (laughs) Write down for yourself on Monday the things that were the biggest news items and that you were thinking about and Twitter Mm -hmm. on Twitter. And then on Friday, ask yourself if people are still talking about them. The news cycle moves so fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number seven, carve out designated reading time. Have a think week every year, Watson says. Microsoft founder Bill Gates takes time to reflect on the future of technology from deep in a forest, for example. He reads (laughs) dozens of academic papers during a solitary and studious retreat in the woods, which helps to fuel innovative thinking all year long. Could you imagine being on a hike deep in the woods and you come across Bill Gates (laughs) leaning against a tree reading an article? (laughs) That would be alarming, right? That would be – I'm trying to think of a Windows joke. Mm, uh, that's funny <laughs> it'll come to me let me just read the uh the headlines of the last three real quick i think they're good uh eight embrace silence nine get off social media mm-hmm. ten go dark he says finally switch communications off once a week and every evening if you're brave watch and says dare to own no cell phone boy Gosh. i have a buddy of mine who uh has a cell phone with no phone plan so he can only use it when it's connected to wi-fi somewhere and oh, wow. uh and that's how he that's how he gets around that's how he communicates yeah it's Man, he's like he's my hero for so many reasons. Yeah, but he he'll be the first to admit like oh, it's it's difficult to do. Do any of these really jump off the page at you? All of them. I mean, <laughs> and some of them. 
what I really appreciate about them is they require a lot of a lot of them required forward thinking, right? Like take a week right. or put your phone away or find people that you can really trust and and build off of. Like a lot of these, when you read them, you're like, okay, that's going to take some thought. That's going to take some uh, some stick to itiveness, uh, but you can see the importance of them, and that's what I think makes them worthwhile. Yeah, and I I was trying to really kind of build some some themes and some some bridges throughout the show today. So coming up next, loosely connected, it's called the dark side social media addiction. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Uh, this is an article from just a week or so ago from Kurt Bubna over at churchleaders.com, The Dark Side, Social Media Addiction. And I share this because, one, I think it is a, an evergreen topic. Two, I think it's getting worse. Uh, and three, every time I feel like I don't want to read one more article about this topic, I read it and I realize uh, there's some new insight in that. There, It's, it's the kind of thing, I mean... I would probably put this in the top five topics you and I most consistently tackle on this show, social media and social media addiction. And yet I keep reading stuff that's like a, a new insight or a helpful metaphor. So that's that's why I share it, because I think it's something that a lot of us are facing or we know someone who's facing. And it feels like the great acceptable addiction at this point. And uh, I think there's some underlying stuff that's worth paying attention to. So why don't you get us into it? Yeah, you're you couldn't be more right about that. Just because uh, I think that you and I talked. Uh, what was the movie? The Social Dilemma, and that's uh -huh. still messing with my mind. And just yes. <laughs> people might think, "Wow, we're doing another social media conversation." I think it's just because it's getting worse, and we yeah. just have to keep it out there in front of people. So the author begins with a story about being in Starbucks, and everybody in the store she noticed was looking at their phone. Uh -huh. Every single person except the workers. Uh, and says researchers at Chicago University found social media addiction is often stronger than dependence on cigarettes. In fact, here's the official definition of this problem. Excessive use of social media or games that interferes with daily life. A compulsive need for smartphone or computer use that negatively affects your behavior or relationships. So author goes on to say smartphones provide us with 24-7 access to email, social media, instant messaging, games, and a billion other things on the Internet. But how much is too much? And so uh, now there's going to be a list. You might have a social media problem if it sounds like the beginning of a Jeff Foxworthy joke right, for the 2020s. You might have a social media addiction. The first one. You spend more time online than with real life, real live breathing humans. Uh, number two, you're not as attentive or productive at work or school as you should be. Uh, number three, you skip meals or eat meals in front of a screen on a regular basis. Number four, you use social media to avoid people or personal problems. Oh boy. Next, you spend an inordinate amount of time sitting in the restroom with your smartphone in hand. <laughs> We're going to skip over that one. <laughs> Next one, you'd rather spend time online than do things around the house. Uh -oh. uh, you have friends or family who complain about the amount of time you spend online. You worry or think a lot about how many likes your last post or cool picture received. You go into panic mode when there's no internet access or you don't have your smartphone in hand. And last, when you're not checking your smartphone, you fear missing out on what's going on, which often makes you unhappy. And so it's going to say, if you answered yes to most of the above, it might be time for a social media detox. But Ian, I hearing the noises you're making as I was reading those uh, cuts to the heart, right? This is, uh, this is pretty convicting, I would say. Yeah, I feel attacked. 
is what I'm, is what I'm going to say. This feels like a personal vendetta. I chose this article, and yet still. <laughs> I'm going to put that list on Facebook and talk about how angry it makes me. <laughs> well, and I will say this, and this is kind of, uh, this has been consistent for Scott Sauls, too. He often just owns to stuff that, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's true just in the pastoral world or anyone in leadership. It's always, like, so refreshing. It's like, oh, I don't hear a lot of pastors say, you know what? I've actually had a real issue with screen time, so I'm launching, like, a new kind of rhythm to to help curb that or to, you know keep myself more accountable. I just, I so appreciate that. Like I just found so much life in him saying, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's been a bit of an issue. So I'm going to, I'm going to go after it. I think, all right. So I'm not, I'm not totally alone. I try to make sure that I mention that, you know, somewhere in a sermon, especially if it's something to do with social media, like just so people know, like, Hey, this is not necessarily an area of strength for me. So I want to make sure to get to this list of how to detox. Cause I think it's, I think it's really helpful. So let me read through it and then I'll ask yep. you, you know, what one or two seemed most helpful to you or what maybe you would add. So he says, how to detox from social media addiction. Uh, One, consider a jolt to your brain by going 24 hours without the internet or maybe take a social media break for a season. Tell people what you're doing and ask them to hold you accountable. Next, turn off app sound notifications. I can't recommend this enough, by the way. Just do it. Like it's, Mm -hmm. don't let your phone dictate when you're actually going to pay attention to it. Uh, Turn on the iPhone screen time monitor. I would add, do it if you're ready for a punch to the gut because it's yes. disgusting. Uh, decide what is reasonable internet access each day and ask your accountability partner to check on your use. Next, check your smartphone only every 30 to 60 minutes and check for email only two to three times a day. That's a really convicting one. Easier said than done. I think the email one's hard because you can justify like, well, it's, it's me doing my work. I'm not just mm-hmm. wasting time on social media. I'm... I'm doing my job, but even that can kind of spiral. Uh, don't bring your phone to meals and keep certain times of the day screen free, like at bedtime. Next, leave your smartphone or tablet in your purse or backpack when at work or school. Only pull it out on a break or at lunch to check your notifications. And then lastly, replace the extra time you now have to do something that helps your brain. Read mm. your body, take a walk or a relationship talk, which is a great list. and. None of that is undoable. Like none of it requires like a subscription or a bunch of equipment. He kind of goes on to say, I'm not anti-tech and I love the access my smartphone gives me. Um, But in a world that is smaller than ever due to rapid technological advances, we need to be intentional about remaining meaningfully and genuinely connected to others. I couldn't agree more. So anything from that detox list kind of stand out to you? Uh, I think it's the one that you kind of also seem to jump off the page to is uh, checking your smartphone only every 30 to 60 minutes, which isn't that much time. Like right. it's not uh, we're, we're not talking about, thir- you know, three days here, 36 minutes and also checking your email two to three times a day. I think about like when I'm sermon prepping or when I'm trying to get work done, the amount of times that I feel myself quickly go check email. Mm-hmm. And then if one comes mm-hmm. in, you got to reply or quickly check this. I. I would be so much more productive at work, let alone in the rest of my life, if I took on just that simple one of like, yeah. you know what, I'm going to only check email at this specific time, uh, only going to check my phone at this time. I think that's a really important one. I do like the first one, although I I can't remember the last time I've done it about kind of giving a jolt to your brain 24 day, uh, 24 hours, maybe a couple days. Uh, I, I think that kind of detox, if we were truly good at detox, uh, that sort of uh, extended time and, and and doing it with your family, right? Kids and, and and your spouse, I think would be, would be really important. I've never done that in, or it's been a long time. Um, 
But yeah, those are the, it, it's not, it's not a surprise that when you ask me which one stood out to me, they have to do with time and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and what, what it does to my focus. So which one of those are two jumped out to you the most? <laughs> I mean, all, all of them. them. Yeah. All of them for, for different reasons. You know, it's, um, it's tricky and you can make excuses. At least I can make excuses. Well, like, you know, I want to make sure that I'm capturing everything that my kids are doing. So to have my phone nearby, you know, I have been starting to you know make sure that it's, it's not in the bedroom, uh, which sometimes means I don't hear the alarm as well. You know, so like I, I need uh, to take an additional step and get just like an old alarm clock to have, you know, in the room so that I don't have uh, the phone in the room. So like s- small little hurdles like, well, I put it, you know, in the kitchen, but now I can't hear the alarm. You know, just <laughs> yeah. such a lame excuse because you can easily without, you know, if you want to have it in the room, you're an adult, you can, you know. You can go back on that decision really easily. So I, I just found like I like I like the way it ends too. It says if the device in your hand is hurting your heart or your relationships, then put it down at least for a bit. Pull your head out of your screen, your mind out of the web, unplug and look someone in the eye and say, "Can we talk? It'll be good. I promise." I just thought, mm-hmm. oh, I just want to like take a, a deep breath after that because I thought, man, that is that's a helpful reminder. And again. You might be consuming the show via a podcast on your phone or your computer. Neither of us are anti-tech, but it's the kind of things that I, I think, especially in a pandemic where a lot of us are maybe all the more involved in technology in some capacity. These are really good, achievable reminders for us that like, OK, there there are healthy steps that I think all of us could take to kind of detox and disconnect a little more than maybe we currently do. Coming up next, though, mm-hmm. to wrap up the show. And I want to do this uh, at the end of the week as well. I'm going to talk about Advent again. This is from Melvin. Advent is supposed to be radical. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. Actually, so we're talking about Advent, and I want to make sure that we're talking about Advent a number of times between now and Christmas. And I, I asked this question online. I think it was on Twitter you know, because I've, I've been seeing a lot of people say, uh, hey, hap, happy Advent or oh. we're, we're celebrating Advent. Right. Um, and this some someone's going to say, well, that's just semantics. But I think you could argue you don't really celebrate Advent. You observe Advent. And then I later said, well, maybe you don't maybe you don't just observe it. Maybe you keep it. And then uh, and then our friend, uh, Father Ken, Kenneth Tanner who's been on the show a couple of times, he says, I, I like our Advent watch. I was like, oh, man, there's a whole world of language that uh, I've, I've never really anticipated. Um, I don't know if you, do you talk about Advent in these ways. Uh, no, not at all. In fact, I think that's why I enjoyed uh, going through it yesterday where we started talking about it, because uh, I, I realize how little I've thought or talked about Advent, quite frankly, through my entire life, including at my church now. We, we always talk about Advent as synonymous with Christmas, and uh, and it's not. And so I, I do. I appreciate kind of giving a fresh look at it. Well, our very own Marcus Brown, he responded and said, seasons are observed. Feasts are celebrated. I will observe Advent. I will celebrate the nativity of our <laughs> Lord Jesus Christ. And don't get me started on Ember Days. <laughs> I could picture exactly him the way uh-huh. he would say that. Yes, exactly. All right. All, all that to say, um, there was a, a great article at Relevant. Advent is supposed to be radical by Amy Buckley just yesterday, I think. Yeah. And uh, I'd love for you to get us into it, Brian. Yeah, she wrote, I've never looked forward to Advent as much as this year, a pastor friend said, with ongoing news of global tensions and suffering. Uh, made us many of us feel tired and off kilter. As Christians, we remind ourselves God is still on his throne. 
But as the world brims with heartbreak, it's easy to wonder, has God, uh, has God taken a hiatus? Is God really in control? In the weeks before Christmas, many of us set up a wreath and light candles in anticipation of Jesus's birth. Uh, Advent, the Latin word for arrival, reminds us that God stepped into human flesh. Emmanuel, God is with us and for us. And so it's going to talk about a couple different things that Advent does. We can bounce these back and forth. The first, it said Advent reassures us that God hasn't abandoned us or uh, hasn't abandoned us or our fallen, broken world. The prophet Isaiah expressed hope for God to deliver his people through uh, during a period of turbulent divisions. As the northern and southern kingdoms fought bitterly, leaving them vulnerable to enemy attacks, God promised them a savior. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and and will call him Emmanuel. Today, our communities and world face turbulent fighting and bitter divisions. The recent U.S. presidential election has left many of us divided and fearing for the future. Images of Syrian refugees fleeing genocide flood us with grief and powerlessness. Already, many of us are overwhelmed. But like Isaiah, we long for God to move. Hmm, That's good, man. The next one says, Advent reminds us of the extravagant lengths God has gone to rescue us and to restore our world. As Christmas approaches, we remember Israel's hope for the coming Messiah to save, forgive, and restore all over the world. Excuse me, all over the world. Oh, my computer just went. Here we go. We're back. All over the world, church communities light candles and read scriptures virtually on Sunday mornings. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's from Isaiah 9.1. I love, love that one. Uh, The next one, Advent guarantees that God has the upper hand, even when the opposite seems true. Uh, Living in between two worlds, heaven and earth, Jesus's spirit reminds us not to lose hope. Although we wrestle through painful circumstances, personal failures, and traumatic world events, Emmanuel has come. Scripture assures our residency in heaven through our fallen, broken lives, though our fallen, broken lives contribute to our fallen, broken world, and our enemy prowls the earth seeking to kill and destroy. God is present in every form of suffering and depravity, painful relationships, chronic illness, addictions, death of loved ones, unemployment, financial strain, children who turn from God. The Bible reminds us of his faithful words. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's Isaiah 43. God is with those who are suffering war, genocide, starvation, displacement, and every other horror known to human brothers and sisters. We can be sure God opposes those who commit evil and will make all things right with justice. The next one says, Advent calls us to respond in radical love for God and our neighbors. The more we know Jesus the more we realize that our lives are interwoven with those around us. Just as Frederick Buechner writes, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like. Uh, gosh, boy, my computer is really going to give me a run Should for money to today. It? No, I got it. It's back. It just blacks out when I'm reading. That's like a, <laughs> there's a metaphor there. It's fine when you're reading. <laughs> I'm sure this is a metaphor yes. for something. Again, Frederick Buechner writes, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. It is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you, too. That's so good. Yeah. And so it goes on to here to say, 
Uh, Emmanuel calls us to love God and our neighbors to our greatest capacity. Living by faith means stepping out in courageous acts of compassion. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In the wake of the presidential election, the author writes, I believe it's as important as ever to get to the business of being the church. May we set aside arguing over political and theological differences. Let's get serious in our prayer lives, our ministry and practical support of widows, orphans, immigrants, refugees, and every other marginalized person in the nation. And then it closes. The baby born to a virgin in a manger over 2,000 years ago guarantees that God is for us, not against us. God sees. God cares. Emmanuel has come to redeem us and our fallen, broken world, and we can be assured that he is in control of everything present and all to come. That's by Amy Buckley uh, at Relevant Magazine. And man, I just think it's a great way to end the show today, that that we're in this season of Advent and in this time of global pandemic and political uncertainty. And, you know, we started the show doing a doing a story about you know, the UN saying there could be famines and food shortages mm-hmm. to biblical proportions around the world. Like there's so much to get worked up about, legitimately get worked up about uh, and to, and to just be um, weighed down by. And, and so this season of waiting and focusing ourselves on the coming birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, I think it's important every year. But, man, it feels like it, it's that much more important this year. Yeah. And I'll just I'll end with this quote from Mitch Stearns from World Vision. Yeah, he's the World Vision president. He said, we must never lose our capacity to feel outrage when human beings are so callously slaughtered. And then we must turn that outrage into action. I think that's so succinct. And maybe that's not typically what we think about when we think about Advent, because Advent, you know, is arrival it's waiting it's looking to the future but it is also and i think probably in a lot of ways maybe this is new information that is it is a way for us to to bring justice to be agents of of restoration it's not just a passive time to you know get all of our christmas shopping done or make sure all of our decorating is taken care of which is all important right but it's it's just way more profound than that it's way more enigmatic than that so i i'm gonna I'm going to propose we talk about Advent a number of times this month because I, th- I think it's an important thing for us to kind of keep out in front. And I would encourage you, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, do a little Googling, do a little research. If uh, if you have any resources that you find particularly helpful, send them our way. We would love to hear from you. And with that, the show is over for Brian Fromm. My name is Ian Simpkins, and you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.